We are going to begin chapter 12, which is a really crucial threshold chapter in uh, the book of John and his account of the life of Jesus. Uh, it is important to, as we start chapter 12 to remember the main event of chapter 11, which was Jesus resuscitating Lazarus, bringing him back to life, and the quite amazing dialogue between Jesus and Martha, and then later Mary, and then the actual uh, bringing of Lazarus back to, bed, uh, to, uh, to life. And I contrasted Lazarus' resuscitation with Jesus' resurrection, and there is a difference, and we talked about that. And uh, as we are approaching this chapter, it is important to note also at the very end of chapter 11 that the leadership of Israel, the chief priests and Pharisees, key elements of the Sanhedrin, have issued a warrant for Christ's arrest. So we're at a, a point in terms of the Pharisaic leader, and really the Sanhedrin itself, we're at a point of no return. They, they, have, they have made up their mind, this guy has got to go, and uh, they are now doing everything they can to organize events in such a way that they can ask Pilate to execute Jesus, which is, of course, coming up. So we are about to enter uh, what we often call Passion Week or Holy Week. We're not quite there yet, but we're almost there as we move into chapter 12. So um, it's a good, good section. It requires a lot of thought, so follow me carefully as we go through uh, this section, particularly the beginning. So, okay, everybody with me? All right, good, good. Chapter 12, again, verse 1, six days before the Passover. Uh, this is more than likely Saturday, because remember, uh, Passover and the, the Sabbath begins sundown Friday through sundown Saturday. Jesus, therefore, came to Bethany. Now, that's, please note that structural marker, therefore. I hope all of your translations I read from the ESV translation have, therefore. John wants us to connect what has been happening, i.e. chapter 11, uh, resuscitation of Lazarus, and all that we discussed the last two weeks, with Jesus' decision to go back to Bethany. Six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany. What's the therefore? What's the connection? Well, he had been in Bethany, brought Lazarus back to life, left. Now he's coming back. But John is saying it's right before Passover, six days before Passover, because we are just about to see the triumphal entry of Christ into Jerusalem. We're about to begin Holy Week. So the therefore is a key marker. We are at the point of no return for Jesus. The Pharisees already made the decision, he's got to go. But Jesus has made the decision now. He is in Jerusalem, or well, he's in Bethany, which is just right over the Mount of Olives from uh, Jerusalem. And he's going to enter Jerusalem on the fall of a donkey, the triumphal entry, which is also in this chapter. So he is telling, he, John, is telling us, this is Jesus' final He's crossing the threshold. He's going to go to the point of no return. He is headed to the cross. It is days away. And so the event that he focuses on is he's back with Lazarus. He came to Bethany where Lazarus, whom Jesus had raised from the dead, he gave a dinner for him there. So he is in Bethany to celebrate with Lazarus the dinner and by the way, that Greek term for dinner, this is the main meal of the day. Like we normally use dinner. When we say dinner, we normally mean the main meal of the day, which is usually probably for most of us in the evening. In, in the ancient world, the main meal of the day was usually late afternoon, very early evening. So this, this John is setting this up for us to understand Presumably, this is a celebratory dinner to celebrate and honor not only Lazarus, but more specifically, of course, Jesus. 
The text tells us then, we're still in verse 2, Martha served, and Lazarus was one of those reclining with him at a table. Now, I think you know this, but let me remind you, in the ancient world, and in Israel there was no exception to this, they didn't sit at tables with chairs elevated, you know, 18 inches or so above the, above the, the floor. They reclined. The table was at the level of the ground, the floor, and you recline perpendicular to the table. Personally, I think that's a very uncomfortable way to eat, but, but that's what they did. And so John is just reminding us that the, the, the whole situation is everybody is reclining at the table, and that would include Jesus. So I want to remind you again, they are perpendicular to the table. So their head leaning on uh, their arm, on a pillow and so on, and their feet are at the very end of the perpendicular angle of the table. That is important to remember because of verse 3. Mary does something. Now this is Mary. This isn't Mary, the mother of Jesus. This isn't Mary Magdalene. This is Mary, the sister of Lazarus and Martha. Look at what Mary does. Mary therefore took a pound, ESV correctly does that, they're bringing that that measure of weight into English. The Roman measure and the Greek measure wouldn't mean anything to you. So it is, it's about a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard. Now what is nard? Probably none of you have ever heard of that. It is a very expensive and relatively rare spice imported from India. Uh, the Roman Empire used it extensively for the anointing of leaders, the anointing of the head of a leader for a particular office or, or even for, for the Caesar, actually. So this tells us something that I think is important. Lazarus, Martha, and Mary are an affluent family. There is a real possibility, the way it's described in Mark's account, which is Mark chapter 14, that this may have been a family heirloom. And this is an extraordinary thing that Mary is about to do. She took possibly a family heirloom. It would be in sort of a flask. It was like an ointment, just like you think of an ointment. That's not hard to imagine what that is. So what did she do with this very expensive, fairly rare import from India that was often used for anointing very powerful, very important people within Rome, how's she going to use it? She anoints the feet of Jesus. In Mark chapter 14, he says she also anointed his head. So what does that mean? Well, she poured the ointment over his feet, poured poured the ointment over his head, and then she did something else with it. She also then wiped his feet with her hair, which is is utterly astonishing because Jewish women almost always wore their hair, as actually so did Greco-Roman women, but wore their hair up. Like we would call it like a bun. Maybe you don't use that term and you don't know what I mean, but it's you you have a a woman has it up on her head, kind of wrapped around and and tied with a piece of string or a special ornament or whatever. She's not. She has her hair unbound, it's flowing down, and she's using that to wipe the ointment from Jesus' feet with her hair. It's extraordinary. This is an almost unimaginable I mean, it really is. This is almost an unimaginable expression of her love for Jesus, of her devotion to Jesus, of her intimate relationship with Jesus. This doesn't have any, some scholars on the liberal wing, highly critical of scripture, try to give immoral connotations to this. That has nothing to do with immorality. This is an example of her love and devotion to Jesus. And I mean, it's this it absolutely is almost unimaginable what she has chosen to do. Martha is serving the meal, 
Lazarus is with Jesus and the other guests reclining. Mary, as in Luke chapter 10, she is seated at the feet of Jesus, listening to his teaching. Here, she is anointing the feet and head of Jesus with one of the most expensive spices you can imagine, possibly a family heirloom of this family. She loves Jesus. And because of this expensive ointment and this expensive the demonstration of her love for Jesus, the home would have been filled with this fragrance. It's a, as I understand, I actually have never smelled nard to my knowledge anyway, but I've read about it. It's, it's very, very poignant, very penetrating smell. I mean, you could not miss it. It's, it's not an offensive smell. It, it's, it's a pleasing smell, a pleasant smell. And so John says, the house, the end of verse 3, the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. Verse 4, notice the response of Judas. But Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, and then John tells us parenthetically, he was about to betray him, said, why was this ointment? not sold for 300 denarii. Now, Judas says that because he has a sense of how valuable this is. Again, denarii doesn't mean anything to you. A denarius, singular, was one day's wage. Most workers in the ancient world were slaves and or day laborers. They would work for day and be paid. So if it's valued at 300 denarii, that's a, that's a year's worth of wages. So you, you get the idea, this is an incredibly expensive expression using this ointment of her devotion to Jesus. But he says, cynically, sold for 300 denarii, given to the poor. Verse 6, John tells us, he said this not because he cared for the poor, but because he was a thief, having charge of the money bag. He used to help himself to what was put into it. Luke chapter 8, verses 2 and 3, we studied that many months ago, told us about the financial backings of Jesus, many of them were women, and that Judas was the treasurer. John's telling us he pilfered the treasure. He took money out of the bag for his own use. So he's just alerting us to what, because we know the end of the story, what really Judas is like. So his comment, sold and given to the poor, is utmost cynicism. He doesn't mean that at all. And John alerts us to that. How Jesus responds is quite instructive. Verse 7, leave her alone so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. Now, this has raised some issues. Keep it. She's just used it. Well, we, we're not exactly sure what Christ means. For the most, I think the most obvious and common sense understanding of this is keep some of it for the day of my burial. In other words, she hasn't used all of it. And so, you know, she, she, it was in a flask. She may have broken the flask and put it in another container or whatever. But Christ is just saying, leave her alone. What she's doing is extraordinary. What an honor to me. And she's going to keep some of it for the day of my burial. We're not going to sell it. For the poor, you will always have with you, but you do not always have me. When Christ says, for the poor, you always have with you, he's quoting, for, he's actually alluding to Deuteronomy 15.11. This is not an excuse to never help the poor. Matter of fact, we are commanded throughout the Bible to be, help the poor. That's one of the main functions, according to Psalm 82, uh, of government, to protect and care for the weak, to protect and care for those, the widows and orphans and, and those who are, are, are harmed and hurt, those who are um, uh, what we would call disabled. So it isn't an excuse, don't help people. He's just saying, put this in the context. I'm only days away from my crucifixion, days away from going back to the Father. You will always have opportunities to help the poor. Don't make this an issue with Mary. She's anointed me. Jesus says in another one of the gospel accounts, she's anointed me for my, 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 my crucifixion, for my burial. And she's going to keep some of it for a final anointing. So 
This is an initiative helping the poor. You will always be able to do that. This is a unique moment in space-time history. She's serving me. She's honoring me. And the implication, of course, is, Judas, you are not honoring me. Now, let me say one more thing before I see if you have any questions. If you go to Mark chapter 14, verses 10 and 11, as soon as Jesus says this, as soon as the anointing of Jesus by Mary occurs, Judas goes to the Sanhedrin and says, I'll sell him to you for a price. I'll betray him for a price. So in Mark's account, you do not see it here in Luke's, in, um, in John's account, in Mark's account, Mark is making a straight line connection between this event of Mary anointing Jesus and, and Jesus' clear rebuke of Judas and Judas' decision to go out and betray Jesus. The motivation is there. And so we're, we will you know, we will see, and you're real familiar with that, because he will betray Jesus in the dark night at Gethsemane and identify him by kissing him so that the soldiers knew, know whom to arrest. So that's just a little bit of an aside. It's not covered in John's gospel, but I thought I would mention it in the complimentary text from Mark chapter 14, Mark's account of this. All right. Any questions or, or yes, thoughts? I have one. This is Woody. Yes. I know you weren't there when all this happened, but... <laughs> I'm old, but not that old. Thank you. Yeah. Do you think that uh, that was at that moment that that was what Jude, that's when Judas decided to be, betray Jesus? Well, I'm not, I'm not sure if at that moment, but the way Mark account puts it, because as soon as this occurs, he goes, uh, the, the next section is he goes to ask, how can I betray him? What will you pay me? And so on. Actually, I think, Woody, and this is not an original thought with me, the decision by Judas to betray Jesus was a decision of process. It wasn't impulsive. It was a decision over time. He is becoming more, he's becoming more and more uh, uncomfortable with what Jesus is doing, more and more uncomfortable with some of the things that Jesus is saying. And in addition, as John has just explained to us, he has been pilfering the treasury, the, the, the treasury bag, the money bag, of the, the, the disciples, of Jesus, because that money was to support the ministry of Jesus. And all of that is coming to a point where I'm going to be discovered what I have been doing. I'm going to be exposed for what I'm doing. And I don't like this agenda of Jesus. Some have even argued, and I'm not sure that I would agree with this. Some have even argued that Judas, Judas really believed that Jesus was the Messiah and he was going to liberate them from the oppression of Rome. Maybe he's going to lead like a revolution against Rome. And of course, that's not what Christ is going to do. That's not his purpose in the first advent that we are studying. I don't think that's that, and therefore, because Jesus didn't do that, he turned on Jesus. I'm not sure that's the primary motivation. It is much more his selfish, self-centered approach to everything he's doing. He's stealing the money from the money bag. He's got his own personal self-centered agenda, and he is closer and closer to being exposed, and he's more and more uncomfortable with the things Jesus is doing and saying. But it does seem as if this rebuke by Jesus that we just read in, in, in John's Gospel, chapter 12, may have been kind of the turning point, the proverbial straw that broke the camel's back. And he, too, then crosses that point of no return. He is now committed to betraying Jesus. And uh, we'll see, of course, that's very familiar. Even non-Christians know that Judas is the one who betrayed Jesus. So I don't know. That was a long answer to your question, uh, Woody. I hope at least it gave a little bit of a context. Thank you. Jim, I have a question regarding um, Judas. He saw all of the miracles that were performed by Jesus. He knew this wasn't an ordinary man. He had every reason to believe he was the Son of God. And in face of that, 
how does he get over that? In your, in your point of view, to betray Jesus, knowing that there is ample evidence that he is, in fact, the Son of God. How does the most august Jewish body, the Sanhedrin, get over that in the face of that evidence? Well, there are two very good questions. I, I need to leave early, so let's pray, all right? <laughs> Um, the, let me take Fred's first and then I'll comment on, on yours, Russ. The, the character of Judas is, is perplexing because unlike so many of the people that we see uh, in, in the gospel accounts, and we will see more in the upcoming chapters, who have all the evidence They've seen the miracles, they've heard the teaching and so on of who Jesus is, but yet they continue to reject him. Judas, Judas is unique in the sense that he spent over three years with Jesus. I mean, he not only saw his miracles and heard his teaching, he, he, he was with him. He slept in the, the same rooms Jesus slept in. He ate the meals Jesus uh, ate, he ate with him. He fellowshiped with Jesus. Uh, he heard some of the, the tender loving stories of Jesus and the loving, tender uh, parables that Jesus taught. Um, so the only, the only way to answer that, Fred, is this is an indication of how hard the human heart can really be. That no matter what the evidence is, no matter how personal and intimate it is, I'm still not going to believe. I had to, when I was in graduate school and seminary, I had to write a paper uh, on was Judas genuinely a believer or was he not genuinely a believer? I'm not going to share my paper with you, but that's what I'm sharing here is partially how I answered the question. Because of uh, the way in which Judas' life is described, and even in his death, which is a death by suicide, and the things that surround that, there is no evidence that Judas was genuine, regener genuinely regenerate. As a matter of fact, the evidence is pretty overwhelming that he was not. Another way of putting it, maybe a kinder way of putting it, will we see Judas in heaven? Most likely not. I mean, I don't know the heart of everyone that dies. Only God knows that. Uh, but the evidence that we have seems to indicate Jesus calls him a son of perdition in another one of the Gospels. That's how he describes him, the son of perdition. You don't speak of a believer in that way. <laughs> so, I mean, the only way to answer the question that you've raised, Fred, and it's a good question, is it is an illustration of how hard the human heart can be. Regardless of the evidence, I still am not going to believe. And there is, I think probably there's no human being that ever lived that had so much light, yeah. light as a metaphor of revelation, so much light and, and still rejected it than Judas. I mean, it's, yeah. it's absolutely amazing. All that he and, had, and yet he didn't. He, you know, he did not and, and I think you mentioned this too in, in prior meetings, um, where when we share the gospel of Jesus Christ, and, I, and I'd love to see everybody in heaven. I honestly would. That's my heart's desire. But I know it's not going to happen. And so I guess this would be a, a landmark case for, for saying our job is to be faithful in sharing the gospel with, of Jesus Christ so that others may come to know him. And, and then at some point we have to believe that it's totally in God's hands after that, and it's not in our hands. We can't maneuver them. Well, I, yeah, you, you're right. I addressed that before. And one of the, the, the most memorable things that my mentor in Pennsylvania said to me when I was ordained decades and decades and decades and decades ago, he just said to me, Jim, your business is not to change people. That's God's business. Your job is to be faithful in teaching and proclaiming uh, the truth. And that, for me personally, I've never forgotten what Mel said to me, that 
um, that was my mentor back in Pennsylvania, um, that was liberating because when you are in ministry, you can take on your shoulders the burdens of people and the, the terrible things that they're choosing to do. And they're refusing to come to faith and, and all of that. You can't do that. You absolutely can't do that. Your job is whatever your role is. Mine is a different role than every one of yours, but you all have the responsibility of representing Christ. Your job isn't to change people. That's God's business. Your job is to be faithful. <laughs> Leave the results up to God. And I think that uh, Russ, the Sanhedrin, in a sense, is the same way. But the Gospels do give us a little hint about the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin has additional things that are on their mind in, 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 in addition to what was on Judah. And that is, if they admit that Jesus is Messiah, they personally are going to lose an awful lot. They're going to lose for the, the Sadducees. They're going to use their, lose their, their position, their influence, because Rome, Rome will not respond favorably to the Jewish nation embracing a new king. And so I think what is important for us to remember is, now this is, make sure you understand how I'm going to say this. Let's suppose that the Sanhedrin and virtually everyone in Judea and virtually everyone in Galilee that was a Jew accepted Jesus personally as their Messiah. Would Jesus still have needed to go to the cross? The answer is yes. He still would have gone to the cross. He still would have died on Calvary's cross. But the results, and, and I shouldn't say the results, the context and specifics would have been different because as Rome executed Jesus by the decree of Pilate in April the 3rd, AD 33, they would have executed Jesus because that would have been a part of the empire crushing this nation who has embraced another king. So Jesus still would have had to go to the cross. That was the plan of the Father. That was what the whole redemptive program was about. But the Sanhedrin, did not want to embrace Jesus as Messiah because then they would have lost everything. They know what Rome would have done. Rome would have crushed a nation that is acknowledging and bowing to another king. So that's part of my answer to your question, Russ. These guys are unbelievable. An example of how unbelievable they are is 9 through 11. They must destroy. They must destroy the evidence. What's the evidence? Lazarus. Because people are turning to Jesus because of the resuscitation of Lazarus. Verse nine: When the large crowd of Jews learned that Jesus was there, they came not only on account of him, but to see Lazarus, whom he raised from the dead. So the chief priests made plans to put Lazarus to death as well, because on account of him, the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. Going away from whom? Going away from the chief priest, the Pharisees, the Sanhedrin, and embracing Jesus. So this shows you how dastardly evil and how immensely ruthless these spiritual leaders are. We have got to destroy the evidence. Let's get rid of Lazarus. And if we get rid of Lazarus, so the more evidence of this massive, important miracle that Christ performed, and then we can get rid of Jesus. So, I mean, that, it's, it's almost unimaginably horrible what they want to do. Kill Lazarus. Why? Because he's the evidence that is causing so many people to stop following them and start following Jesus. Or in the way John puts it, on account of him, many of the Jews were going away, meaning going away from them, and believing in Jesus. So we're at, again, this, this critical turning point. For the Pharisees, they've reached a point, of, and, and the Sanhedrin, they've reached a point of no return. This guy's got to go. For Jesus, he's reached the point of no return. This is the beginning of Passion Week. The next, chat, the next verse 12 begins the triumphal entry. He's crossing the point of no return. What about Judas? Judas has point crossed the point of no return. 
he has made the decision he's going to betray Jesus. So everything is set up now. God is, the Father has sovereignly organized the events. The execution of Christ is about to occur. But that's not going to be until Friday. This is Passover. Excuse me. This is the triumphal entry. This is Sunday. The next day, which would be Sunday, this officially begins what we call Passion Week or Holy Week. It's what we call Palm Sunday. The next day, verse 12, the large crowd had come to the feast. Now, what feast? That's Passover. And, and you know, we've talked about that, but that now should be deeply ingrained in your mind. Passover will be the end of the week, Friday. The feast Passover that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they, now this is the crowd. That, let me comment on this, the crowd. What was the makeup of the crowd? Who's in the crowd? Uh, it, it's not dozens, and it's not hundreds. It's probably thousands. I, I'm not sure it would be tens of thousands, but thousands of people. Many of them are the pilgrims from Galilee. Because remember, Passover week is when Jews from all over would come to Jerusalem. Galilee, and we, you, know, you know the geography of that. We've looked at maps a number of times. Nazareth, where Jesus' hometown was, is, is in Galilee. So anyway, many of these are the pilgrims from Galilee. Some are from Judea, and a small handful would be from the city of Jerusalem itself. Because Palm Sunday and the triumphal entry in Palm Sunday Road, which leads from Bethany down to the temple, is you're not in Jerusalem yet. So as he's walking down on the, the, the as you'll see in the next uh, part of the paragraph, He's on a young donkey coming down what called Palm Sunday Road. It's a very, very steep hill going downward. You're starting at the top of the Mount of Olives. You're going down to the Kidron Valley and then up to the temple. So as he is, they took branches of palm trees. Now, the palm tree was the national symbol of Israel. And if you've ever gotten Jewish money, the shekel, on one side of the shekel is a palm branch. That's one of the national symbols of Israel. It's a patriotic symbol. I wouldn't compare it to the American flag, but it's, it's kind of a symbol. So they're taking palm branches of palm trees. This would be the date palm, D-A-T-E, the date palm. By the way, if you want to eat dates, don't eat the dates at Hy-Vee. Import the dates from Israel. They're real palms. Oh, man, dates. I could eat, I would always bring back a couple of boxes. They are absolutely fantastic. You've never eaten a date till you've eaten a date grown in the Middle East. Well, I digress. I'm sorry. They took branches of palm trees, of the date palms, and went out to meet him. Now, notice the language. This is quite extraordinary. Hosanna. Now, they're not whispering this. They're screaming this. Hosanna is Hebrew, and it means... Yahweh, save us. Ha, ho, yah, they're all the same Hebrew. Hosanna, Yahsana is how they would pronounce it, is Yahweh, save us. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. They're quoting from one of the Hillel Psalms, Psalm 118, verse 25 and 26. So, I mean, guys, just think of the language of this. Think of what we've been reading in the previous chapters, and now the language of many of these Galilee pilgrims, many of the pilgrims in Judea that have come to Jerusalem, and a smaller number, I would argue, that are actually from Jerusalem. What they're crying out is absolutely amazing in the context of what's going on. Yahweh save us. Blessed is he who comes in the name of Yahweh, even the king of Israel. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written. And here John is quoting from Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9, one of the great messianic prophecies in the Old Testament. Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. 
John is now explaining to us that as Jesus is riding this foal of a donkey, this young donkey, down this steep hill headed into the temple, this is fulfilling Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9. And Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9 depicts Messiah as a shepherd, servant, humble king. So this is the, and this is absolutely astonishing. This is one of those events I would love to be able to go back in history and see this. You have these throngs of pilgrims screaming these terms and blessings out of the Old Testament Hillel Psalms. And John says, this is fulfilling Zechariah 9.9. My goodness, you're thinking, when the kingdom's ready to come. He's going to be anointed and crowned king. Well, no. A lot has to happen yet. But the messianic expectation, the messianic fervor, the messianic excitement is really high here. This is remarkable what is going on in Jerusalem, Sunday, the Sunday before Good Friday. Verse 16, his disciples, meaning Jesus' disciples, did not understand these things. They didn't understand what was going on. I mean, they saw it, but they didn't understand this fulfilling Zechariah 9. They didn't understand the importance of what the the, the pilgrims are crying out. But John says, when Jesus was glorified, that means when he was crucified, buried, resurrected, ascended. Then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. That is reminding us what we already know from our study of the word of God. For these disciples, it does not all come together until after the resurrection. It's when Jesus comes back in the resurrection. When Jesus is raised from the dead, that's when everything clicks. Everything comes together for these guys. A question. So yes, please, Glenn. Why? Why in the world, after all the parables, all the teaching, um, you know, in the Synoptic Gospels, you see him call them out, and, and how many times did he say they're going to kill me? How many times did he come out and say he was the Messiah, directly and indirectly, and? Uh, how, how, how did they not connect this event to the fulfillment? I mean, it, well, and, and you look at the, the Emmaus walk, and then you look at that, even Downing Thomas. So e- even after, you know, even after the resurrection, they still were like, what? Um, well, you know, I, I, I don't, uh, I'm not sure, Glenn, if I can answer that satisfactorily. Um. I think the, the other element that the scriptures tell us, and especially in the book of Acts, of course, is it's as the Holy Spirit comes. And the Holy Spirit then is added into the mix of enabling them to understand, and in the words that Paul uses in 1 Corinthians 2, to embrace and welcome the truth, that they begin to really put all this together. You know, I, 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 I try not to be too hard on the disciples or anybody else because I know how dense and, and, and hard-hearted I can be often about the truth when it's staring me in the face. So um, the, these guys are in the process of understanding everything. I mean, this is happening. This is happening so fast in some ways. Because all of a sudden, Jesus is headed to the temple, riding on a donkey, which he had instructed them to get and all of that uh, from, from the, uh, 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 the owner of donkeys in Bethphage, a little town near Bethany. And now he's doing this, and all of a sudden he's crying. And they're, they're saying, wait a minute, what's going on? This is exciting. Wait, this is great. Wait, Lord, they're really here. And then John is saying, they're not putting all this together. They're not putting this together in terms of all the Old Testament prophecies. It's going to take some more time for them to do that. Glenn, that's the best answer I can give. 
I mean, it's, it's all, you talk about all the metaphors that are used in John, right? It's almost like um, the, the scales on Paul's eyes um, yes. on the road. It's almost like they, it's like a metaphor for the scales the other disciples had, where they're yes. just totally, completely blind to yep. what's in front of them. Yep, that's okay. exactly right. And it, they just have to, um, if you follow your metaphor of scales, the Lord has to peel those off slowly from our spiritual eyes until we really, really, really see the truth. That's why, and uh, I have no idea, I'm assuming it's based on solid good surveys, but that's why they tell us a person has to hear the gospel presented to them carefully, intelligently, methodically at least seven times before they respond. I honestly don't, I don't know where that comes from in terms of the basis of a study, but I, 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 I've used it. I believe that's true. I, I know where I, I, I have it sourced. But it's, it's the kind of thing that just demonstrates again to us that in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 4, Satan is called the God of this age, and he blinds unbelievers to the truth. There's an encrustation over the spiritual eyes of every human being. And it is only God, the Holy Spirit, using you and me as the ambassadors, you and me who talk to people, you and me who give people books or, or tracts or, or copies of the scriptures. And they then begin, and it is God's Spirit that begins, let's use your metaphor, peel those scales away from the spiritual eyes of people. And I mean, that, that's why, and back to my response to Fred's earlier question, our business is not to change people. That's God's business. And God has to do it. Because the spiritual blindness of humanity, I don't need any evidence to support the proposition that human beings are spiritually blind. I see it everywhere. <laughs> I am amazed. That's why it's so exciting when someone comes to Christ. I'm amazed that anybody comes to Christ. But the miracle of salvation is just that. It's a miracle. And here's that railroad tracks, that complex intersection between divine sovereignty and human responsibility. All right. May I move on? Thank you. You bet. That's great. Thank you. All right. Verse 17. Now John returns to the crowd. The crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continue to bear witness. What does that mean? They're continuing to tell, Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead. Verse 18, the reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they had heard he had done this sign. Now, there's two separate groups there. The crowd that saw Jesus bring Lazarus out of the tomb. In verse 18, another crowd that heard about the miracle heard that this was a sign. And so they're here watching and seeing Jesus riding on the donkey. So now he shifts, John shifts to the Pharisees, verse 19. So the Pharisees said to one another, you see that you are gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. <laughs> Now, there's a little bit of irony there. There's a little bit of hyperbole there. Because the instability of the crowds, the, 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 the growing popularity of Jesus, the growing reception of the crowds of Jesus, of going to Jesus, is gaining. And the Pharisees are saying, the whole world's going after him. Now, that's obviously exaggeration. That's hyperbole. But... This is the beginning of the end of the Pharisees. They are losing. And they think they win when Jesus is crucified. They don't. Because the book of Acts will tell us, slowly but surely, they lose their grip. And then Rome comes in the 60s and destroys the nation, burns the temple in AD 70, and the Pharisees flee. This is the beginning of the end of the Pharisees. Their days are numbered. And so when they say the world has gone after him, that's hyperbole. That's an exaggeration when they said that. 
but it also is true. The world is going after Jesus. And so this, 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 as I've used in our discussion so far today, you, you know, the point of no return is being crossed here by all the different actors in this drama of, of the crucifixion of Jesus. Yeah, I have a question for you as far as the Sanhedrin and the, uh, the Pharisees uh, today. Where are they today? The Sanhedrin does not exist. Um, after uh, Rome destroyed Jerusalem in AD 70, they, the, some of the Sanhedrin fled to a little town called Jamnia, right on the coast of the Mediterranean, and then they fled to Tiberias, which is on the west, a city right in the center of the Sea of Galilee on the west side, and they would reestablish the Sanhedrin there. But by about the year 200, the Sanhedrin has been dissolved. It's gone. Very interesting a thing occurs, though, in the early 1800s, about 1802 or not, or so. Napoleon Bonaparte, when he is conquering Europe, Napoleon is doing a lot of really strange things. Napoleon shows tremendous favor toward the Jews, because the Jews, as you know, had been persecuted through the medieval period and all that. And he, is, he is, shows favor to the Jews, passes a lot of laws showing favor and protecting the Jews and, and establishing their rights, and he reestablishes the Sanhedrin, Napoleon. Now, that didn't last, but as an example and illustration of his favor, that is Napoleon, he shows to the Jews, he does reestablish the Sanhedrin as the governing body of Jews, because the Sanhedrin is the governing body of the Jewish people. But the problem, of course, is that there's no temple, there's no high priest, there, there's nothing <laughs> in, 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 Jew, in the Jewish diaspora except the synagogues. So that was a political act on his part. But I said that more as an aside, because that doesn't last. But today, there is no Sanhedrin, because there's no governing body of the Jewish people. What you see in Jerusalem, what you see in the government of Israel today, under Benjamin Netanyahu, who's the current prime minister, you have a group of very orthodox Jews who are the key religious leaders of orthodox Jewry, but a lot of the other Jews don't agree with what they're doing or agree with their agenda, because Jew the Jewish, if you want to put it this way, the Jewish religion today is a highly divided, very polarized religious system, very polarized. They do not agree on most things. And you have the Reformed Jew, which is a very, very uh, religiously very liberal, and I don't mean politically, but very, very liberal. Then you have a conservative kind of in the middle, and then you have the Orthodox Jews, and there are about six or seven different blocks of Orthodox Jewry. And they don't agree on anything. So I mean, they don't like, agree on anything. That sounds like it's as confusing as looking at um, Christianity then. Well, in a sense, it is. I mean, it, it, the fragmentation and polarization of Judaism is what you see in almost every major religion. Islam is, is fragmented and polarized. And here in the West, we think that Islam is one unified monolithic. It is not. <laughs> the Sunni and Shiite divisions of Islam, they absolutely loathe one another. They hate one another. The United Arab Emirates signed this treaty with Israel for one reason. Israel and the UAE have a common enemy, Iran. And the UAE are Sunni Muslims, and they detest the Shiites. Now, I, I'm getting way beyond your question, so I'm going to stop. So I hope I answered your question. Uh, where are we? Verse 20. What time is it? Okay, verse 20. Now, among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. Now, this is very interesting because these Greeks, let, let's, let's talk who they are. These Greeks are God-fearers, non-Jews, who have come to Jerusalem as converts, they are converting to Judaism. Do you remember uh, the centurion in Capernaum? He converted to Judaism. 
he uh, built the synagogue in Capernaum. So these are Gentiles, the Greeks. So these came to Philip. Philip was from Bethsaida in Galilee and asked, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. When John uses that phrase, we wish to see Jesus, meaning we'd like to interview him. We'd like to talk to him. Philip went and told Andrew, and Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. Jesus' answer is really quite confounding and difficult and perplexing. Verse 23, Jesus answered them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Jesus is alluding to Isaiah 52, verse 13. As I said, this, our time here this morning, that the, the point of no return has been reached for Jesus. He's headed to the cross. So he states that. This is the time for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, now remember that is amen, amen, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls to the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Uh, okay. What does that have to do with being interviewed by the Greeks who are converts to Judaism? Well, it's, it's a parable. It's a figurative statement. Unless a grain of wheat falls to the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. What does that mean? When you take a grain of wheat, you put it into the ground, and after a period of time, it becomes a stalk that bears much fruit, which feeds lots and lots of people. So the fruit in Jesus' little parable are the Gentiles, because Jesus is going to die. He's going to be, be brought to life, and he's going to bring much, 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 much fruit. And the fruit is the fruit of salvation. So I am absolutely convinced that Andrew and Peter didn't understand what Jesus was saying. But you and I, and he's going to, they're going to get this. But you and I can, oh, I get what he's saying. His hour has come. Isaiah 52, 13. His Isaiah has come. And his going into the ground to die, that substitutionary penal death, on behalf, is going to yield the fruit of Gentiles coming to know Christ. So you Greeks who want to talk to Jesus, you're part of the harvest. And then Jesus, verse 25, makes a comment about discipleship. Verse 25, verse 24 is about salvation. Verse 25 is about discipleship. Whoever loves his life loses it. Whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal sake. Verse 24 leads to verse 25. Verse 24 leads to discipleship. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there my servant will be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Now, let's, let's work our way through this. Verse 24 is about salvation. Verse 25 is about discipleship. Verse 26 is about glorification. As you come to faith and salvation in me, as you become my disciple and experience the process of sanctification, you look forward to the promise of the Father, where the Father will honor you with a resurrected, glorified body. So I don't know what happened here. All of a sudden... A bunch of stuff has come up on my screen. Glenn, can you see that? I don't know what I did. I do not see it. Okay, I must have done something. We don't see it either, Jim, so it's not confusing. Yeah, we can we can still hear you. You look the same. There you see you. Yep, you're good. So you can't see me? Uh, we can. Nothing has changed for us, only for you. Okay, good. Well, then I'm going to keep going because we're almost out of time here. And so in, in those verses that we've just read, I, again, I don't know if Andrew and, and Philip got this, but as Christ is responding 
Now listen, I'm not sure, this is Jesus, I'm paraphrasing. I'm not sure I have time to really be interviewed by these Greeks, these Gentiles who are converts to Judaism. But I'm telling you one thing, my hour has come. I don't have time to sit down and have an interview with CNN or Fox News or MSNBC. You choose which one you listen to there. But anyway, but I'm telling you, my hour has come. And I am going to die just like a, a wheat, a kind of wheat that yields enormous fruit. The Gentiles are going to be part of the fruit. And discipleship, discipleship is, is losing your life for me. And I tell you, you await the tremendous fulfillment of the Father, his fulfilled promise. He will honor you. And that honor, there's a lot that is involved in that, but that honor is a resurrected, glorified body that he has promised. Eternal life with God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit. Eternal life and fellowship and communion with the saints, with all believers of all time. Because where I am, you will be with me, John 14, 1 through 4. It's stating the same thing that he's been talking about throughout his public ministry in three pithy, succinct bullets. Bang, bang, bang. That's it. All right? Yep. All right, good. Now, we... I'm going to start this. It's almost a quarter of. I'm going to start this, make a couple of comments. And then next week, I want to start again with verse 27. But I want to, I want to introduce it, talk a little bit about it here. Because here we see a, a prayer of Jesus. Here we see a prayer of Jesus that is, is, is something we have to understand this at the level of God the Son talking to God the Father. This isn't like you talking to God or me talking to God. This is God the Son talking to God the Father. Now is my soul troubled. Now ESV is what I read from. ESV translation has translated that Greek term, which is terasso, has translated that troubled. It could be translated unsettled. It could be translated stirred up. It could be translated coming unglued. It could be translated anxiety ridden. This is the God man, Jesus Christ, talking to the Heavenly Father. He is ours out days, but not many from what is going to happen to him on Calvary's cross. He knows he's omniscient. He knows what's about to happen. What shall I say, continuing in verse 27? Father, save me from this hour? That's rhetorical. That's not what he's praying. He's troubled. He's coming unglued. He's stirred up. He's in unsettled. This is... This, this is overwhelming to Jesus, the God-man, of what's about to happen. But because I'm unsettled and stirred up and, and, and anxiety and, and, and troubled, is, shall I say, Father, save me from this? I don't want to go through with this. But for this purpose, I have come to this hour. What purpose? The purpose to die this substitutionary penal death on an ugly, horrible cross. Father, glorify your name. I'm not going to ask you to save me from this hour. I know why I'm here. I know why we're doing this. Glorify your name through it. Now, I'm going to stop there. If you want to know how God the Father responds, come back next week. Because this is the third and final time the Father breaks through heaven and speaks. He did it at his baptism. He did it at his transfiguration. Now the Father speaks again. So if you want to find out what he says and, and put it together, come back next week. All right? I'm going to pray.
Heavenly Father, we are grateful for the privilege you give us to study the Word of God together. Thank you for this uh, really quite almost confounding and amazing demonstration of Mary's love and devotion for Jesus. As she anointed his head and feet with this very expensive perfume from India that maybe had been a family heirloom of, of them, but she dedicates it to Jesus. And we also see the various reactions to the various people, even as Jesus enters Jerusalem. John's account of the triumphal entry is very short, almost pithy. I mean, it's very succinct. But it helps us, Lord, to see the crowds are using messianic language. The crowds are using the language out of the Old Testament that points directly, specifically, and, and incontrovertibly to the Messiah, to Jesus. And all of this is perplexing to the disciples. It causes the Pharisees to respond. They want to kill Lazarus. This confusion. But the one thing that's true is Jesus has crossed the threshold. He's headed to the cross. His hour has come. And he's about to die this substitutionary death to purchase redemption and salvation. And even, I hope every one of us in this class has made that decision of faith and is learning what it means to be a disciple, and is looking forward to that tremendous hope and promise of the Heavenly Father honoring us with a resurrected, glorified body when, his, when the Son of God returns. So thank you for each one of these men. Stir in them a passion and desire to walk faithfully and obediently with you. Help them to be strong men of faith, strong men of God who represent you well. Commit them to you. Thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. See you next week, man.